Hello and welcome to Unramblings, the podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlene and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're going to be talking about Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. We're in that sweet spot between Thanksgiving and Christmas, which seems most applicable for it. And I work retail, so the entire period running up to Christmas is just The Nightmare Before Christmas for me. I've been there before. It's not fun. I'm going to once again apologise for the sound of my voice. I am still recovering from a cold. I have a sore throat and thus sound all raspy. I realise that this is episode four and I have had a sore throat for three of those episodes, so you might just think this is what I sound like. Maybe I do. To combat the issue we had last time of the cups with spoons in being too noisy, I've replaced my warm tea with lemon with just straight bourbon, and uh, that's working well for me so far. Anyway... Okay, this episode will obviously contain spoilers for The Nightmare Before Christmas. In a second, you'll hear additional spoiler warnings and content warnings as applicable. So we'll throw forward to Future Us. Hello, it's Charlene from the Future. In this episode, we briefly mention scenes from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and some of our conversation in the first episode about The Shining. We also mention Ursula in The Little Mermaid. As far as content warnings, there is some discussion of an emotionally abusive relationship in the story, but I think otherwise that should be it. Now back to past us. We'll go ahead and move on to the summary of the work. As a lot of people probably know, The Nightmare Before Christmas is the story of the residents of Halloween Town who normally make Halloween, deciding to make Christmas instead after their leader, Jack Skellington, accidentally stumbles into Christmastown and is enamored of the new aesthetic that he has never imagined. It all goes horribly wrong, of course, um, and that's pretty much the story. Yeah, that's the resolution of the plot. It's just, it goes horribly wrong, and then the, just cut to the credits. Yep. It's an interesting choice. Well, not exactly. Santa does save the day at the end, because Santa. It is kind of his thing. To prepare for this episode, we watched the movie and took some notes. It was great. We rewatched the movie. Well, yes, we rewatched it. We had both seen it several, several times before. There's going to be a bit of a balancing act for us with these episodes. And frankly, we can't read a book or two or watch an entire TV series every week. So sometimes we're going to do something that's a little bit shorter, so we can do slightly less prep work, and then we can spend more time. Next week, we're doing a full novel, so this gives us time to read the novel without having to read an extra novel for this week. Hopefully that will work out to there being some shorter episodes to counteract the really long ones, or maybe we're just going to ramble a lot about Nightmare Before Christmas, and then next week we'll talk for 15 minutes about The Left Hand of Darkness, but who knows? There's no way we're talking for only 15 minutes about The Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah, next week's going to be a long episode, guys. Probably. Unlike all the other episodes. Yep, which has been delightfully brief. That was that one of the three. Which was like an hour. Yeah. Instead of an hour and 45 minutes. Anyway. So where do you want to begin? I also want to add that we've been joined for this recording by our black cat shadow, which is appropriate. We'll see how long he sticks around for the recording. Okay. So I think we should start by talking about the relationship between Sally and Dr. Finkelstein. Oh, wow. That's a whole can of sexism worms. Yeah. Yeah, it's not great. Like, that is a very literal objectification 
situation. Uh, like, she's literally an object that he made, that Dr. Finkelstein made. That he cares to remind her about on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like when your mom is, you know, trying to coerce you to do something because she gave birth to you and, you know, goes into all the labor, like, the literal labor of birthing you and stuff. So that, you know, you have to feel guilty and obligated to do whatever it is that she needs you to do. He does that, but it's like, I made you, and I made you to take care of me, basically, and, like, is always guilt-tripping her. Yeah, I actually have a couple of the quotes here, which were, I made you, you know, and, referring to himself, to whom you owe your very life. Mm-hmm. Like, fairly textbook abusive parent relationship there, I feel. Yeah, really not cool, and especially when you add the weird... I don't know, there's, like, a weird sexual element there, too. Like... Do you think so? I think so, because then he makes... Because he's unsatisfied with Sally, he makes a partner for himself who's a female version of him, who's going to be his intellectual partner, who's not going to... Who's going to want the same things as him because she is him. Like, when he made Sally to take care of him, and because she had her own will and her own spirit, he wasn't satisfied with her. He wanted someone that he could literally just project his own will onto and just have that be who they were. Yeah, that's really the problem he has with Sally, is that she has that pesky free will thing going on. Yeah. I mean, maybe sexual is not the right word, but he's definitely looking for a partner in her, but he he was looking for a subservient partner. Yeah. Not even a, really a partner, but a servant. Um, a maid. And is the whole thing's really gross. It is. He literally withholds pieces of her body, like, takes a part of her arm at hostage, mm-hmm. uh, minimizes her feelings and her personhood, literally locks her up, and she has to escape through her own ingenuity. And I think there's something really compelling about the fact that she has to literally take herself apart and temporarily lose parts of herself in order to do what she wants while she's trapped in this really, as you said, really abusive relationship. Yeah. I have some pretty mixed feelings about how this whole plotline is kind of handled. Like, it's kind of one of the few problems I do have with the film. Yeah, I do actually have written in my notes, how do they get away with the Sally and Doctor subplot? Like, how do they get away with this in a kid's movie? So yeah, like, he does, like, he does literally, she has to come back for it, and, like, he sort of taunts her with the fact that she's had to come back for her arm. And you're sort of sitting there waiting for him to get his comeuppance at the end of the film, and he really doesn't. No, he gets exactly what he wants. At the end of the film, everything works out Finkelstein. Like, he didn't get the thing he wanted originally, he's managed to replace that with something perfectly fine for him, that makes him happy. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, like, Sally has escaped... But she's done so through so much harm to herself, and also by sort of latching on to another person. Like, she's escaped this abusive relationship with a parent figure to an abusive relationship with a love interest, which then puts this weird... Like, I mean, if you put that into the real world, there's then this weird weight on that relationship, I feel. Are you characterizing her relationship with Jack as abusive? No, I'm saying that she has left that abusive relationship... Not by striking out and being by herself full stop. She's mm. escaped from him and in that and as a way to secure herself away from Finkelstein, she partners up with Jack instead. 
the points at which she decides that she's interested in Jack and wants to go after him, she's still under his thumb. She has escaped temporarily. Mm-hmm. So it's an, and it's escaping our relationship by getting into a different relationship, which, from my understanding of the relationships in the real world, might mean that if that relationship doesn't go as well as it might do, whether abusive or not, like it might prolong that relationship beyond when it is appropriate because there's this idea of if I leave this I end up going back to that. I don't know if that's true because I think that Sally is shown to be very persistent and internally motivated and driven Hmm. um, and to have a high degree of ingenuity and so I don't think that she would just go back to Finkelstein if things didn't work out with her and Jack especially since Finkelstein has moved on from Sally as a caretaker and from relying on her and coercing her because he doesn't need her anymore because he's made his bride with his, with half of his own brain. So I think that if things didn't work out with Jack, or even if they did work out fine with Jack, Sally is able to become her own person uh, once Finkelstein no longer feels the need to oppress her because he's made his own partner. He's decided Sally's not worth the trouble. Yeah. To clarify, I don't necessarily mean that she'd feel like she would go back to him, but it puts that sort of like, this relationship might not be perfect, but it's better than what I had before sort of awaiting on it. I suppose, but I think you do get a lot of the sense of Sally as probably having some of the strongest sense of self shown in the movie. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think she would see those as related. And perhaps I'm underselling her a little bit. I've got some stuff to say about that a little bit later. I do remember when I like first saw this film years ago, whatever it says about me at the time, like finding Sally very annoying and kind of whiny. And then going back this time, I was like, no, she's cool. Sally, I feel like, is the voice of reason in this movie. She's the only one who is willing to confront the people she cares about when they're wrong. And I think that shows a lot of her courage. Like, she is not afraid to tell Jack who the entire town is in awe of and never gain, never tries to counter, countermand or uh, gainsay his perspective on things and tries to tell him, you're, you've got this all wrong, you're making a huge mistake, you should stop. And he doesn't listen to her, but she's not afraid to confront him about it, which I yeah. think is really powerful, especially because she does have a crush on him, is maybe in love with him. You know, a, a lot of people wouldn't have the strength of character to do that, to potentially jeopardize their future connection with someone that they idolize by conflicting in that way. Yeah. It's the Neville thing. You know, she stands up to her friends. Um, Back to the whole, like, how do they get away with the whole Sally and Doctor thing and how gross and objectifying that is. I think that it's way more obvious to an adult and I think that's probably how they get away with it, the way they get away with a lot of more adult humor and jokes. But with this time, it's more they're getting away with a pretty dark adult subplot and an adult connotation to that relationship that would probably go over the head of a lot of kids because Dr. Finkelstein is never violent to her. He doesn't hurt her overtly. Um, and so I think a lot of kids might not realize just how toxic and messed up that whole dynamic is. Yeah. It can feel as though it's abandoned without a resolution, but I think to some degree, like, what we expect to see in a kid's film is Finkelstein is some sort of villain, Mm -hmm. um, and thus at the end we should see him 
strung up in whatever way. Like, we have Oogie Boogie's demise. Why don't we have Finkelstein's? And I don't know to what degree it's the, it's more realistic that effectively Sally escapes and eventually Finkelstein decides that she's more trouble than she's worth. And perhaps it's on some level a commentary on things that there's no one that at any point, like no other character ever comments on, wow, that relationship's messed up or we should, you know, Finkelstein should be whatever for this. Yeah, I mean, like Jack, likes him like respects him as a scientific authority yeah. and goes to him for help with his christmas plans and he does also like and trust and respect Sally and that's why he goes to her for the santa costume because he knows that she's really clever and creative and would be able to execute it in a way that no one else in the town would and i think that does say something really interesting about you know as a commentary on our society and how a lot of the time people who are abusive really kind of hide in plain sight in society. It's not obvious to other people outside of their relationship because the abusive person often has this charming demeanor and curates this respectable image. Yeah. We just need the Dixie Chicks to cruise through at the end of the film. One thing that I do have a mild concern about is that we're supposed to think that Finkelstein does get his comeuppance because he ends up partnered with a female version of himself and whether there's a weird drag thing going on there, but I might just be overly sensitive on that topic. I don't know that I got that because he, he put half of his brain in a body, a feminine body that he made so that he could have a female bodied partner who was himself intellectually. And there's something very complicated in that. Yeah. And it really, what that tells me is that he doesn't know how to love anyone but himself and doesn't really know how to respect or connect in a genuine way with someone who's not himself. I mean, what he says when he's putting together the new version, the new partner he's making is, we'll have conversations worth having. Yeah. And you see a scene where he's like going through a whole bunch of different model heads and none of them are the one that he uses. But when you see the model, she's just got a head the same shape as him with, like, the duck bill. And so it really just is, like, he will not be happy until he is in love with himself. Because he's in love with himself, there's something very masturbatory about it. Yeah. he He's a narcissist. Yes, exactly. You said it way more succinctly than I did. Not that that's hard. <laughs> there's a reason that we called the podcast a man. So, continuing on talking about Sally, but sort of more alongside with the music and as sort of a storytelling device, Sally is shown as being sort of the most perceptive and the most intentional character within the plot. She holds that similar sort of role that Danny does in The Shining, where she's sort of watching the show but and like can see what's going on, but nobody's really listening to her for one reason or another. Um, in this case, rather than just being a child, she's being held back by this abusive relationship. And also Jack isn't paying attention to her because of his own issues that we're definitely going to get into in a minute, I think. But, I mean, we see her have this sort of Cassandra-esque vision of the thistle turning into a Christmas tree that then catches fire as this prophecy of what's going to happen with Christmas that just gets completely ignored. So the sort of thesis that I want to go into that I want you to sort of challenge me on a bit, really, because I'm not certain about it, is Sally plays some very important roles in the film, but appears... A surprisingly small amount, all things considered. She only has one song of her own, 
and largely like is sort of relegated into a subplot, but I think drives a lot of the main plot. So like a lot of the musical notes that sort of accompany what she's doing tie into the much bigger plot. So when she's like escaping from Finkelstein to go and help Jack and try and like send out an olive branch, you get this note of the something's up with Jack music cut into that before you actually get the music where you get the something's up with Jack. It's not really a song, it's more of a phrase. Similarly, Sally's love song where she's sort of like all forlorn and woeful is used several times throughout it. But most importantly, it's used at points when Jack is in a really dark place and she's in a really dark place and then also still remains that same tune for their song together at the end when you get this sort of happy resolution for the two. So I sort of want to posit her as being almost a Greek chorus type character where she's almost outside the story and narrating it, but still a part of it at the same time and how that ties in with the music that she sort of when she's not necessarily speaking or singing herself, the music that is alongside her serves that purpose as well. That's interesting. I can definitely see the idea of her as having this sort of Greek chorus-esque role in that she is kind of tying a lot of things together and the person who is, you know, kind of pointing out the problems that are to come. But I would also argue that she's the closest we have to a hero in this movie. And that's very different from being in the Greek chorus role. She's the person who notices the problems and actually takes the actions that lead to them being fixed in the end, because she's the one who rescues Santa. She's not only the one who rescues Santa, but she's the one who recognizes that's what needs to happen in order for things to be put back to rights. She's the one who does all the creative problem solving in the movie. And even at the end, like Santa Claus recognizes her as the person that people need to listen to as like their common sense guide in the town of like, if you have other crazy projects you want to do, you should confer with Sally because she seems to have her head on straight, basically. Yeah. And I I think like your point about Santa talking about her is very apt. Like um, I happen to note down the quote of Santa says, She's the only one who makes any sense around here. And I think that's a really important vision. I think saying that she's the closest thing we have to a hero, I think that if they made the film today, or were trying to say something different with it, she would be the hero. I would say that in the 80s, and with the way that she's portrayed in that, I think Jack is still the hero. He's a flawed hero, and I think that's fairly acknowledged. But it's... Sally isn't allowed to save the day in the film. Sally tries to go and save Santa and ends up trapped as well and almost gets dunked into the lava that's in Spy Oogie Boogie. Jack has to come by and save the day because he's the man and that's what men do. <sighs> and given the way that Santa talks about her and a way that a lot of the film does show her as having that extra perception level and knowing what's going on, that could be an attempt on Tim Burton and Danny Elfman's part to say... The woman's the one actually doing the work here. Mm-hmm. The guy's just showing up. Or it could be that I'm giving them too much credit and that, you know, it doesn't matter how hard a woman works in the background, she's going to be the woman behind the successful man and not allowed to have her own limelight. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. You know where the phrase limelight comes from? I did, but I don't at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. 
stages, they used to get the light on actors by having several little burners at the front where they would burn something to do with lime, like limestone type mm-hmm. stuff. I can't remember exactly what it is. This is a useless fact. So it's literal limelight. So if you got to stand at the front of the stage and be up in the front of everything and visible to everyone, you were getting the limelight. Oh, interesting. Useless piece of information that rattles around in my brain. Cool. And now it's in yours. Yep. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's fair. I, I think you could definitely see her as having a sort of Greek chorusy role, but I think she's much more active in the story than a Greek chorus typically is. Yeah. If anything, she's in both. Yeah. I'd say that, yeah. I really think that there is just a Greek chorus of music in that the major themes from a lot of the different songs are sort of woven together to give you an idea of what's going on in the scene and what what a particular scene is important for in relation to the big ideas. Even before the song might be played, you'll have strains of it during a scene that sort of foreshadows the sorts of ideas that are important in it. Yeah. I do think that's an important storytelling device in the story because the music is an important part of keeping the whole thing cohesive and pushing the story along, given that it's so short. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Going back and listening to to talk about this a little bit, like it's very masterfully done how much stuff is brought in just for a couple of bars of like something in the background just to play with those themes um what i'm really saying is that danny elfman's great yes he is a genius but and what i'm particularly talking about is like the layering of major themes from different songs to give a fuller picture of what's going on in the scene and i think that's done in a lot of different parts of the movie again even before the song that some of those themes are from has been introduced in the film yeah I would perhaps need to go and watch the whole thing once more to say it. I think that you're right that the music does fulfill the Greek chorus more than Sally, and that Sally might be in both of those roles. I do think that Sally tends to be present when you get those hints at other music, mm-hmm. but that is a hypothesis that I'm putting out there, not a fact that I can state right now. Sure. I realise that we've been mentioning it a little bit. I did say Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas at the start of this episode, um, if you're wondering who Danny Elfman is, he's the guy who wrote all the music and is the singing voice for Jack. Yeah, he was the composer who scored the film. Well, he didn't just write the songs, he also scored the film. Oh. Okay. Those are different things. Okay, fair point. Anything you want to add to that? No, I don't think so. If we're talking about specific storytelling elements that we noticed as really being very integral to driving forward major themes in the story... I would like to point out a lot of the aesthetics that are used in the film. Most of the aesthetics that you get are of Halloween Town, and everything's very kind of muted and a lot of gray tones and more dull colors and things like that. And it's a really fascinating contrast to Christmas Town, which Jack is only in briefly, and then of course Santa Claus, the way that he's colored. And I, I think it does a lot to really highlight why Jack becomes so obsessed with. Christmas and Christmas Town because it's so unlike anything he's ever experienced before, um, and I think that that's really cool. It really like they do a really great job of establishing these very distinct settings, um, and they also do the same thing with the music again. With the music you hear in Christmas Town being very tinkling and pure sounding, and not having the darker themes associated with pretty much the entire rest of the movie. Yeah. 
I think that they do use a lot more major key stuff for Christmas theme. And counts. primary colors, like pure yeah. primary, pri- pure primary and secondary colors for Christmas. Yeah. And I think that the, the What's This song really captures that. Definitely. Delightfully. I don't really have a good point to make about that. I just really like that song and just wanted to like fan over it for a moment. It does a really good job of capturing this childlike joy and wonder mm. that must be so alien to the very dark and gritty experience of Halloween Town Denizen. Uh, because everything in Halloween Town is grimy and scary and like has this graveyard patina on it. Right, but at the same time to say that like the people of Halloween Town certainly seem to experience joy and wonder. They do love the big Halloween parade, and the mayor is very excited by lots of things. Mm-hmm. And when Jack comes back to show them the stuff from Christmas Town, they're excited. They're excited for all the wrong reasons, but they do experience joy and wonder. Mm-hmm. It's just a different type of wonder. That's true. Well, I mean, like, this very innocent, childlike joy, and I don't know. It's There's something very innocent about it. The way that Christmas Town and what is this the song like, you know, feels. Yeah, I'm just being nitpicky. Maybe, but that's kind of what we do here. So if we've said all we want to say about the you know visual aesthetics and aesthetic differences there, I'd like to talk about the different leadership that we see in Halloween Town. Okay. So we see three significant forces of personality, I guess or leaders in Halloween Town, the mayor and Jack and Oogie Boogie. Okay. In the preparation of this, you said three, and I went the mayor, Jack, and I didn't put Oogie Boogie yeah, on stuff. So I would like to propose that there's some influence of the ideas of the id, the ego, and the superego in the construction and portrayal of those characters. And I I want to bring that to you because I know that that's an idea of very outdated and no longer particularly respected perspective from psychoanalysis that is still very widely represented in English literature and art history and things like that. So what are your thoughts on, on that idea? My thoughts are that I think you just call my opinions and knowledge like old and outdated. Well, no. What I'm saying is that these are ideas that are used a lot more in arts now than they are in practice. That's an interesting hypothesis. Talk to me about how you see that falling out and how each one might represent one of those things. So I think that Oogie Boogie is obviously the one that maps on to the id. Yep. And I don't even know that I necessarily have to go into that, but he's shown to be, like, he's very, like, he's got this lascivious interest in Sally. Well, first, let me just explain what I mean when I say id ego, superego. So Freud had this idea that our subconscious mind was divided into kind of three processes, the id, the ego, and the superego. And the id is the part of our subconscious that's primarily devoted to instinctive animal-like drives and desires so these are really primitive um stuff like lust hunger fear things like that and is not colored by social mores or ideas of morality or anything like that 
And then you have the superego, which is the exact opposite. That is the internalization of all of your kind of social awareness, your ideas of what is acceptable and unacceptable in society. And then, and is kind of, you know, the, the part of your subconscious that makes you feel ashamed of things or tells you what you should do. Um, and you know, what, the ideals are that you should be striving for. And then the superego is the part that mediates between the two that kind of tries to find a way to meet or control the drives of the id in a way that's acceptable within the boundaries communicated by the superego. Does that make sense? Yeah. So to put it into nice typical Freudian terms, the id is your desire to sleep with your mother. Your, the superego is the social consciousness that you shouldn't sleep with your mother and ego is where you end up balancing out between those two things. By dating someone who's exactly like your mom. Sure. I think I've dodged that bullet, but sure. I would posit that Oogie Boogie maps onto the id. Okay, Maybe that's that seems fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. And just to add a little bit of support here, he has this lascivious interest in Sally. He's very co- concerned with status and fear. He's afraid of Jack. And he wants to be important. He's literally composed of bugs, which is one of the most like base life forms in the human perspective. And so I think that, that that's a lot of stuff to go with him being more primitive and base. Also, there's all of these gambling things, themes associated with him, which is another very impulsive type of pursuit. And then you have the mayor, who I would argue maps onto the superego. He has these ideas of what the town and the townspeople should be doing. He shows up on Jack's door the day after Halloween with the plans for next year's Halloween that he wants to go over with Jack so they can plan it all out and they can get everyone started on what they should be doing during this period of time. He gets very upset when anything disrupts what he thinks is supposed to be happening and just completely falls apart and freaks out. He cannot deal with things being out of line and out of place from his expectations. And then you have Jack, who is the one who's the real authority in Halloween Town. Everyone actually looks to him. The mayor actually says, I'm only an elected official. I can't make decisions by myself, which I think is also a commentary on politicians. Um, but I think is also a nod to this, the ego being the real decision maker of the subconscious. You know, that's the, the closest part to your conscious mind. And I might be misstating some of these psychoanalytic terms because, again, we don't really use them in psychology anymore. But do you see what I mean? He's the one who really calls the shots and tries to mediate between, you know, Oogie Boogie's destructive capacity and influence in the town with the mayor's more structured and... Mm, that's the word I'm looking for. Not nitpicky, but, like, fussy. Fastidious? Yeah, with the mayor's kind of... I haven't been listening because I've been trying not to cough the whole time. Okay, and Jack is the one who actually mediates between Oogie Boogie's destructive nature and the mayor's more fastidious adherence to, like, the shoulds of the society. Yeah, and I think that's probably a decently... Like, I can certainly see your point of view on that, with Jack definitely keeps Oogie Boogie in check. As you say, he's scared of him, and he definitely puts up with the mayor. Like, mm-hmm. he very rarely interacts directly with him, so much as sort of says things while the mayor is around, and the mayor goes, duh, 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 and <laughs> says whatever he wants to do about that. Um, and it's fairly incidental. Yeah, and then 
the way that the entire town seems to sort of stop functioning when their ego wanders off for a while. That's fair. It's interesting that the id doesn't sort of run unchecked in that period of time. I feel if they had an hour and 45 minutes instead of an hour and 15, then maybe we'd have Oogie Boogie takes over Halloween Town for a week. But. Well, he's definitely planning to, because mm. when he hears, he's kidnapped Santa and Sally, and Sally's like, you know, Jack, you know, is basically going to come in and rescue us or whatever, and Oogie Boogie hears the sirens talking about how Jack is dead and has been blown to smithereens, and he's really smug about it. And he's... Very clearly, like, then he thinks, oh, okay, now it's my time. I'm going to be in charge because the one entity that could keep me in check that I was afraid of is no longer here to do that. Um, and I also think that it lines up well with this idea that his henchmen are the children who are the one who are, children are the humans who have had the least amount of time to absorb these cultural norms and ideas of what's right and wrong and what's appropriate, really that the mayor represents. And so yeah. they adhere to Oogie Boogie. They follow their base drives. Yeah. I mean, this was a really long conversation just for you to get an excuse to use the word smithereens, which I know is what you were really doing the whole way through. It's such a great word. I only said that so I could use it. It's fine. Okay, that's interesting. I had a slightly different take on the leadership things, but I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. In fact, the combination of the two might be kind of interesting. I didn't consider Oogie Boogie as part of the leadership, and in retrospect, I probably should have. So I'm going to tell you what I think of Jack and the Mayor, and mm -hmm. we'll see if we can work out where Oogie Boogie would fit into that. Mm -hmm. So I took the Mayor and Jack pairing as sort of a commentary on the difference between an elected leader and the cult of celebrity. Mm -hmm. So you have this Mayor who's seen as being very two-faced. Literally, he has two faces. Yeah. And it's either, oh, everything's great, or panic-stricken. Mm -hmm. And he's portrayed as being loud, whiny, ineffective, and pandering to his base. It's funny that you say that, but when we were watching the movie, you pointed out that there are points where the face that's talking is not facing his base. It's the face that's pointed to the camera. And so I think there is also a commentary perhaps there of politicians ignoring their base to talk to the camera mm. or ignoring their actual constituents, the people who, you know, they should be representing and instead are pandering to the camera. Or it was easier to animate that way and they never thought anyone would look that closely. But it's more fun to go with this one. I mean, if you're going to say we're reading too much into things then they just don't really have a basis for a podcast. <laughs> So Jack, on the other hand, is this big celebrity figure who's beloved, but also massively flawed, I would argue. He's a king. Hmm. He, Jack the Pumpkin King. Okay, fair point, fair point. He's pretty damn narcissistic. Um, his only real concern is for himself. When he goes off to Christmas Town and comes back, he's not wondering about how Halloween Town is going to do with all of this. He's concerned with the fact that he wants to do this thing. He's just got this complete focus on his art to the destruction of everything else. He's pretty oblivious to everything else going on around him. Mm -hmm. um, and even when someone brings, tries to bring it to his attention, he's so used to being unchallenged. Perhaps because he's in an artistic celebrity role rather than an elected leader role where he... Is accountable to anyone? Yeah, he's not accountable to anyone, precisely. So, like, when Sally comes to 
say, hey, there's this problem. Like, he's so used to being unchallenged that he doesn't assume that she's going to say anything negative and just assumes anything she's saying must be going to be a compliment. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the relationship between him and Lock, Shock and Barrel is interesting because you get to see that dark side of him where they're scared of Oogie Boogie, mm-hmm. but they're just as if not more scared of Jack. Mm-hmm. And at first, my first thought when they're scared of Jack is, oh, maybe it's because they've got their own abusive relationship and they expect to be attacked by someone who's displeased. Mm-hmm. But then when they do displease him, he does turn around and scare them mm-hmm. in a pretty aggressive way. He's far from perfect. He's loved for what he does. Mm -hmm. But who he is as a person isn't actually great. As you say, he's unaccountable. So while he has the attention of the people, it's only through when it serves his own ends that he serves as a good leader. He saves the day at the end of the movie because he chooses to. For him, he realizes he did something wrong that has impacted in some degree on him and he should fix it. Not because he's benevolent and kind. I think that he does realize that he's hurt people in what he's done. Yeah. And the fact that he wants to make amends does reflect on him as at least not... As being a pretty good person. I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's a very entitled person. Yeah. He's, for a large part of the movie, really obsessive and oblivious, as you said, to the way his actions are going to affect anyone else. As long as he's pursuing his creative dream, he's fine. And even when he recognizes that the people he's, you know, sort of pressed into executing his artistic dream aren't actually getting it right, he's still pretty happy because progress is being made in the direction that he wants. Yeah. There is an interesting element of like, well, at least it's not the same boring thing. It's kind of in the right direction. He's still kind of trying to get them to do things a little bit differently, but he's kind of compromising as long as it's getting him somewhere. So you're telling me that Jack advocates for incremental change? Maybe. (laughs) He wanted a radical new artistic endeavor, and then he realized that the production capacity just wasn't there and is compromising, but trying to push it as far along his vision as he can. Yeah. I think it's interesting because you get this sort of opposition between the mayor and Jack as these leadership types or these people that we look to for leadership in our society. Mm -hmm. And both of them are portrayed as flawed. Mm -hmm. One, because they can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And one, because they're going to do what they want to do. And if that happens to be what you want, then that's great. Hmm. So I think part of the the difference there between the mayor and Jack is Jack has the buy-in of the people. And he kind of abuses it. And the mayor doesn't have the buy-in of the people, but he needs it. And so he sort of piggybacks onto Jack's buy-in of the, by the people. Mm. So he wants Jack's approval on the Halloween plans because the people follow Jack. And Jack uses the people of Halloween Town to execute his vision because they will. So do you see a way that Oogie Boogie fits into that? I think that Oogie Boogie has been sort of pushed out. And, like, he clearly wants to be involved because, like, Jack tells Lock, Shock, and Barrow, like, don't involve Oogie Boogie in this plan, and they totally do anyway. I think he's sort of the sea witch of this area, you know? He's in a similar role to Ursula. Like, clearly he had power at some point, and clearly he's been pushed out, but he still has his 
you know, his followers in Halloween Town. There's still people who sympathize with him and who will try and build his power as much as they can. See, it's interesting because the only things that I could think of for where Oogie Boogie would fit in instead of as an ego, super ego, but in a societal sort of way, was either as he's fairly easily portrayed as being like the mob leader type thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's not that much said about that. I think there is, because they call Lock, Shock, and Barrel Boogie's Boys. It's like, they're his mob. There aren't that many of them, but... The other thing, and I mean, this this might sound broadly negative, but if it does, then it's about what Tim Burton's saying, and not what not my own opinions, is whether he's supposed to represent the masses, the people. Oogie Boogie? Yeah. As he is literally a mass of smaller people that don't have an independent voice, but have a louder voice put together and have by these two leaders being largely pushed out and ignored these two leaders don't seem to massively care what they're saying but they're scared of him or they're wary of him of oogie boogie of oogie boogie yeah as any political leader should be right but i think that i think that is an, um some support of that idea i don't think that there's a whole lot in the movie that points to that and i don't think it works out with the way the movie ends i don't yeah and, unless they're suggesting that political leaders should extinguish the people. The, it yeah. doesn't really work. No. As I say, didn't have a great idea for this going. I don't know that it quite works in that way, but I do think I think the mob thing is more appropriate. The idea of him as like, you know, the leader of the underworld of Halloween Town. Mm. It's more the the it's not the legal channels, it's the, the shady channels. I'm not sure what that really says as far as a societal commentary from conversion and Danny Hoffman. But. So have we said what we wanted to say about the leaders in Halloween Town? Did we reach any sort of conclusion? I mean, I think we concluded that the whole idea of it ego superego seems pretty substantiated through the movie and that there's also some commentary there on like social versus institutional power in the way that Jack and the mayor are kind of portrayed in the movie and also pretty scathing commentary on institutional power <laughs> political officials i think the one thing i want to compare it to is the leadership of christmas town because i have the one question written down here which is is there a mayor of christmas town we don't hear any mention of one we have santa present um eh, santa present eh. <laughs> no just me okay cool we don't really see a lot of the people in Christmas Town, so it's hard to say what's going on there, but it seems as though things run fairly smoothly most years. Yeah, I I really don't have anything to go on to say whether or not there is a mayor of Christmas Town. But I think you could definitely assume that Santa is the counterpart to to Jack, like the person who is the the charismatic leader, I guess, of Christmas Town and the one that everyone relies on and the one who has actual magical or physical power to do things in the world related to the holiday. Yeah, that's fair. I know. It's something where I'd be interested to know more, but they haven't given us more. Well, I do think it's interesting you see the way that Santa confronts people who are challenging him. He is firm but kind in a lot of ways, or like disapproving, but he doesn't try to intimidate or threaten people. Yeah. Like, not even Oogie Boogie. He doesn't try to use his Magic, whatever it is, maybe because it's not particularly offensive magic, but he make he tries to appeal to morality and higher values 
Which is a problem when it's Oogie Boogie. Right, which doesn't work on Oogie Boogie (laughs) because he's functionally this id character who morals? Higher values. What are those? And so it doesn't work. But Sally recognizes that in Santa and he recognizes that she has values and strength of character. And I think that's a big part of why he says to Jack, next time you want to you know, try and do someone else's holiday, you should listen to her. She's the only one who, you know, has any sense around here. And I think that's because he sees in her a similarity of thought and of value. Yeah. Of, and of personal values. Okay. To follow on from talking about the different leaders in Halloween Town and talking about Jack in particular, I wanted to talk a little bit about the portrayal of Jack as an artist and how it sort of ends up leading to him appropriating all of the trappings of Christmas in a really harmful way that doesn't work. So at the beginning of the movie, we see that he's kind of faking enthusiasm for the execution of Halloween for the benefit of the town so that they'll feel good about the effort they put out, but then goes into Jack's Lament where he expresses how bored he is and how he is, you know, he's no longer inspired by that process anymore. It, it says he's grown tired of the same old thing he he wants to grow and, and explore new challenges, and he just doesn't see any new challenges with Halloween anymore. It calls out for something unknown is, is one of the things he says again. And in that period, he's literally kind of running away from himself as he runs away from Halloween Town and runs into Christmas Town and is so enamored of this completely different place and completely different aesthetic And because it's so different and it's something he experiences at a point where he's looking for something different, he ends up appropriating it and trying to own it in a way that ends up being very colonial and toxic. And so what are are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I think that's probably a fairly major thrust of the film. I think it's interesting that, like, he's looking for something different and he's looking to be inspired. And when he finds a source of inspiration, the mistake he seems to make is to, instead of taking it and creating something new, he just tries to take it and tries to imitate it in as much as way as possible. At the end of the film, after he's had the crash and he has this moment of realization, he becomes inspired and is like, oh, I've got so many great new ideas for Halloween. Mm -hmm. Whereas he's had this period of time where he's instead going, I've got so many great ideas of how we can do Christmas. Right. And I think that sort of comes through with him on how they can try and do it. And you mentioned colonialism. Really well demonstrated in the scene where he's trying to explain Christmas to the people of Halloween Town. And it comes across as sort of this like bad early anthropology. Mm. Where it's this problem of filters where you can't escape your own filter of what your understanding is. They do this because... Well, we do this, it's just similar, so they must be doing that. Sure. I'm sure there's a good example for that that you could give me of, like, real-world situations. No, I think I know what you mean, where he's trying to explain it, but as you say, like, he he get, he falls into this trap of distorting it unavoidably by the Halloween paradigm. Right. And, I mean, the other thing is it's not just his own filters that are the problem. I have in my notes, I've written, like, that he has a bad understanding. And then I've crossed that out. Because it's not that he has a bad understanding, it's that he struggles to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he understands what Christmas Town is about. He's been there, he's thrilled by it, he's explored it, and 
feels like he knows what he's talking about. Feels like he knows what he's talking about. And I don't think he's too far off based off of what he's trying to do to understand it. But then when he's trying to explain it to people, they don't get it because he's saying, oh, like this is a present. And they're like, oh, there must be like dead animals inside. That's what would you put inside of a box and give to someone, right? And he's like, well, no. But after he's been struggling for so long, he gives in on trying to explain properly and just is like, yeah, sure. And you know what? They're ruled by this demon who's got big claws. Let's mm-hmm. go with that. I'll give them what they want. And yeah. then at least they're excited, but they just don't understand. Right. And he then laments that he, that they just don't understand. But he, it's fascinating because while he's trying to study it, he acknowledges that he isn't quite getting it. But he says that... He, but he just decides that he's trying too hard and that it should be his and he can improve it. And so it's more than him being inspired. That's where, that's why I brought in like this sort of colonial perspective. It's not even just, oh, this is great. And I can totally, you know, use some of these elements to improve things that I'm doing and, and to incorporate into things that I'm doing. It's that I can take this specific culture, this specific holiday and it will be mine, and I can make it better. Um, and I think that's, in a large way, where he goes wrong. But it's it's interesting because he's he's not the only one who does that. The all the Halloween Town denizens, who I feel are less culpable because they don't really know what they're trying to emulate. They're getting this secondhand with no idea what they're really trying to do. And so, of course, they're having to lean on their own experience and their own ideas of what works. But he's the one who really starts that train. Yeah, it's the difference between... Well, I mean, it, they're, they're the kids playing cowboys and Indians. Yeah. They've been told this is okay, so they're going to go ahead and do it, and they don't realize what they're enacting there. I have the quote from... I think it's the end of the scene where he's not under realized he doesn't quite understand, but feels like he should be able to take it. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's the point at which he stops trying to explain it and to understand it, and to just decide he's going to be the Santa Claus, mm-hmm. and then they'll do it better. Where he says, um, "Why should they have all the fun? It should belong to anyone." Where you're like, "Oh well, maybe yeah. I mean, you know, maybe it should be available to all." And then he says, "Well, not anyone, but me." Like, this is my thing now. I've taken it from them. Yeah. You've moved away from sharing in that experience to appropriating it. And then he says, I bet I could improve it too. And that's the ultimate arrogance that he has. It's like, not only can I take this thing that is fundamentally yours, and by yours I mean belonging to this culture totally separate from my own, but I will be superior at doing your culture? It's like, wow, that's arrogant. Yeah. And I think it's really amazing that the movie still manages to make Jack this very relatable character and you still like him. And I think a big part of the legwork in that is his characterization as an artist before this. Because you get to see him at the low point where he's so depressed and so lost and doesn't know what to do with himself and has lost all the joy in his life. And this is something that has brought him joy when he was starting to despair of ever feeling it again. And I think that really does a lot to make you want to kind of see where it goes and see if he grows in this experience instead of just writing him off as this 
really arrogant and entitled male antihero? Hero? Um, male protagonist. Protagonist. I was going to say, let's just go with protagonist. Yeah, I do have a note here that I, I scribbled to myself for what's in the film, which is that this is really just Jack's midlife crisis. <laughs> He's an old white guy and should really just get a sports car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Just as an aside and something that I just like looked at it and was like, wait, what? Is they have the countdowns in both towns mm-hmm. to Christmas and to Halloween. Mm-hmm. And those countdowns are the same. Like when they're hoisting up the sign to change the Halloween countdown to Christmas, mm-hmm. the date doesn't, like the number of days remaining doesn't change. And then you see it in Christmas and it's the same number of days. Which means that either at some point Halloween Town did change it so that they're now counting down to a different day. Or they do it on Halloween, or in this universe, all ha- all holidays happen at the same time. It's very confusing. That is weird. Well, I know they changed the countdown in Halloween Town, because then they it's at first counting down to next Halloween, and then it's counting down till Christmas. Yeah, they literally hoist up an extra sign to just cover up Halloween yeah. with Xmas, but yeah. they don't actually change the date at all, for the number of days remaining. Like, it just ticks over by one as it's doing. That's weird. I don't know how that works. Yeah. It may just be an error on someone's part that they didn't think through, but... Or it may be an indication of how slapdash and, you know, ill-thought-out Halloween Town's Christmas planning is. But they do do Christmas on Christmas, because otherwise it wouldn't be an issue for the people in the real, quotes, real world, mm-hmm. or for the people in Christmas Town, because it would just be like... Oh, this Halloween, like, some weird Christmas theming was going on. Like, Christmas really needs to stay in its lane. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I think we've covered our main points, which sort of leads us into our big question at this point. Yeah, I think so. So, this week, our big question that's really asked by this piece is pretty related to what we were just talking about, which is, where is the line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation? I think that what that comes down to is the sentiment, nothing about us without us. You can't just take something from another culture and try to use it as your own with no context that comes from the people it came from and with no understanding of the meaning behind those traditions or those ideas that you're then trying to honor in your own life. And I think you can incorporate aspects of other cultures in your life respectfully. Food is a really great example. There's all sorts of fusion elements, you know, fusion foods, and it's not like the original cuisines are lessened in any way. It's there, there's homages, you know, and there's acknowledgement of the value that a diversity of, of ideas can bring to the world. But it's a real problem when you do do it the way Jack did, where you either like try to pass it off as your own or just don't provide any context at all. So, like, I think a really good way that the movie shows this is that at the end, Christmas is brought to Halloween Town. Santa, in his generosity, brings Christmas, made by the Christmas Town people, to Halloween Town so that they can experience a genuine form of it. And that's a beautiful and generous thing, I think. Does he bring Christmas, though? Because snow? <laughs> I, think, I think he just brings snow, which is almost better. Because I think that, like, I, I mean, I don't think I disagree with you. I think that we're on very much the same page here. But I think that it's really well characterized as an issue of respect and consent. Definitely. You, if you have to res- 
on one part, you have to respect the other culture, mm-hmm. and that culture has to consent to you taking something from it. Not taking something from it, but as much, because that's exactly the problem. But, but as, to sort of integrating right. aspects of it. So that final scene that you get, well, it's not the final scene, but the final scene of like the Christmas Halloween side of things is Santa saying to Jack, Happy Halloween, mm-hmm. presenting a respect of the culture, mm-hmm. and Jack responding, Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of them have any problems with the fact that they're not using the same greetings. It's great. It's not like it's America or anything. Did I mention I work in retail? And then they realize that they have snow coming down, and it is something that they enjoy and seems to be imparted from Santa. So there is that consent of, why don't you try enjoying this, which is something that you can enjoy as part of this without trying to do all the stuff that you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Celebrate your way, mm-hmm. but take advantage of this. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think so. One of the things that I think it kind of points to is the difference between cultural competency and cultural humility. So for a long time, and still in a lot of educational programs and you know, corporate handbooks and things. There's this idea of cultural competency, which is supposed to be this idea of res- of showing that you respect other cultures by making an effort to learn about them and trying to be open to diversity, right? But there's a problem with the term competency because when you become competent at something, you stop learning it. You feel like you're an expert or you're you're good at this. And you really can't be competent in someone else's culture Mm -hmm. and so and that is why there's been a shift to use cultural humility instead of course a lot of institutional things still need to be updated but that's the trend that things have been going in in social sciences now to basically acknowledge the idea that you can't be competent in someone else's culture but you can be humble about your ignorance and the limitations of your understanding and kind of let other people kind of guide you and be respectful. Yeah. I mean, we have our usual problem of being two white people for this, but I think to speak from a small amount of personal experience, it's been interesting for me in navigating some of that, partially as being someone who lived in mid Wales for many years, which is an extremely white, fairly, not necessarily conservative area, but like a fairly insulated area where I didn't go to high school with lots of openly LGBT people. There were two non-white kids in our school and the local police investigated them for links to a terrorist group. It was that kind of atmosphere. And coming out to the States or even just going down to London or something, there was a lot for me to learn at various points. And I mean, I've now lived in the States for over five years and there's still occasional times when I'll say something and someone will be like, um, and it's just something I had no idea about being a thing. Or I'll say a word and someone will be like, I have no idea what that means, despite the fact that, I mean, even you will not know what a word is that I've just used because I just haven't dropped it in front of you in the past seven years. But then on the other side of things, and I mean, this is A, a very mild thing, and B, it's to complain about anyone taking anything from British culture is ridiculous <laughs> because Britain is at fault. So, I mean, like any anything being done to Britain is punching up and go right ahead. But it's very strange for me to see things like the keep calm and carry on being used in so many different ways and so prevalent over here with so little understanding of where that came from or what it meant. I'm sure I've told you, but just for anyone 
else listening, like that original Keep Calm and Carry On poster was never used during World War Two. It was produced as a piece of effectively propaganda for in case we were occupied by Germany. And it was the Keep Calm and Carry On, despite the fact that you're, you know, subjugated by German troops. Like, it's the British stiff upper lip. So whenever I see that phrase, that's where my brain goes to. And I mean, there's plenty of people in the UK who don't know the origin of that as well. It's just a weird piece of history. But it does get used without that understanding behind it. As I say, that's fine. Britain is at fault far more in cultural issues than they have any right to complain about anything. But that's just been my experience of there being something where I'm like, uh, really? Well, I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. And, you know, any culture can be appropriated. Even if it is a, you know, colonial power with a very, like, hegemonic structure. Like, that's that still doesn't make it not a culture of its own. So I don't think it's unfair to call out instances like that as well. It would be hypocritical to do if you did not also acknowledge all of the extensive appropriation that Britain has done. But I try to be aware about such things, but sure. nobody's perfect. I certainly am not. Yeah. But, you know, my point being, like, there is... You can be inspired by something and you can appreciate it. And you can even use it to a certain extent. But you really need to be very conscious of how you do that and respectful and not be doing it as a costume or in a way that implies that you have ownership of of it in some way or in some way the originator of these ideas or patterns or whatever. Yeah. You should always be giving credit where credit's due and definitely take the lead of the people whose culture it is in terms of defining or characterizing it in any way. And as with any issue of consent, consent is given and can be withdrawn at any point. If someone is of a culture and says, actually, I'm not okay with you doing that, it's not for you to say, yes, you are. Yeah. It's on them to decide on that. And that just... That just goes back to this idea that if someone says you hurt them, you don't get to say that you didn't. But people try so. Yeah, they do. I think that answers the big question fairly neatly. But I think the bigger question that this movie really asks is, if you could live in any holiday town, which would it be? Bearing in mind that this is as it is portrayed in the film, or as it would be portrayed. So bear in mind how Halloween Town really looks, regardless of how much you might like Halloween. Uh, yeah, I don't think I would want to live in Halloween Town. It seems pretty disgusting. Also, I would not want to live in the American Independence Day world because I feel like that would be all kinds of toxic. Ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Also really loud. Like, your hearing would be shot in, like, five minutes. I think everything's probably shot there. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. Let me see. There's Christmas, Halloween, Easter... Thanksgiving, St. Patrick's Day, Valentine's Day, and American Independence Day. Because there are seven doors in the forest. I'm impressed that you could list all of those. I would have got half of that. What about Christmas Town? That one would probably... I mean, that's the one I could go to. Because it's so, like, bright and happy and somehow seems warm despite being full of snow. It's like, it's cold outside, but inside seems very warm and inviting and it probably smells great in fact i think jack comments on like the baking smells or something and so that's that sounds pretty good and it doesn't seem 
to be particularly like Jesus oriented. Like they seem to be prefixed with Santa. So it is capitalism, apparently, because it, it's the Santa in the red suit from Coca Cola. So. Yeah, so maybe Christmas Town. Although it is cold and snowy there. Yeah, I thought that might be your Like, infection. that's like my only issue is the cold and snowy, but otherwise, probably Christmas. I think I'd probably go for Christmas Town because it's cold and snowy. And I kind of miss that living in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And you got Easter Town. I'm not sure that Easter Bunny, like, seems to have a huge level of conversational skills. Yeah, he's pretty quiet and also seems. Like, to very much be a bunny. Like, yeah. he gets scared and hides in the bag and, and, like, shivers and stuff. So, in a very convincing bunny-ish way. I'm not sure I have a lot of faith in that, you know, planning <laughs> ability of that kind of a leader. But I feel like Valentine's Day would be somewhat fixated on romance. You know, it could get really weird to, like, live there. And St. Patrick's Day could be really interesting, depending on whether it's... St. Patrick's Day or Americans' idea of St. Patty's Day? But I bet the stew is delicious. Mm, I bet there is delicious stew. There's probably less alcohol than Americans would expect. Probably. What is St. Patrick's Day like not in the United States? Oh, I mean, it's pretty much become a drinking thing everywhere now, but I don't think it's originally purely about drinking disgusting colored beer. But is it a dyeing your rivers green holiday elsewhere? I don't think anyone takes it to that extent. I think they just go and drink Guinness at this point. I, and don't get me wrong, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, probably Christmas Town. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the only one we really see other than Halloween Town. And so between the two that we see, it's definitely the more appealing one. Shall we do some fun facts? Sure. So there is a fan theory relating to Zero, the dog. Mm-hmm. So this theory posits that several Tim Burton films take place in the same universe. Mm-hmm. The films being... Vincent, Frank and Weenie, and Nightmare Before Christmas. In Vincent, there's a kid who has a dog that he uh, wants to try and turn into a zombie. I have not seen this film. I'm paraphrasing based on the internet. And consequently, his parents end up giving the dog away. So the theory goes that in the film Frank and Weenie, the same dog is adopted and is renamed Sparky. And Sparky eventually dies. And then in... In the movie, or...? Yeah, I believe so. I'm not sure. But then the dog, the the Sparky, then ends up in Halloween Town and is adopted by Jack and renamed Zero. Or at some point in that process is renamed Zero. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because the grave is marked as Zero. Mm -hmm. But all three of them have are a similar size and have the same shape nose. Mm. So yeah. I thought that was an interesting little thing. And if that's the case, if that is an accurate fan theory, then the fact that the dog could die and end up in Halloween Town would suggest that Halloween Town is indeed some kind of afterlife. Hmm. While we're talking about Zero, his nose is a jack-o'-lantern. It's a very tiny, mm-hmm. very tiny jack-o'-lantern. You can see when it lights up in a couple of the scenes. Yeah. It has a little face. Yep. It's hard to spot, but it's there. One of the other fan facts I have is about Oogie Boogie. Uh-huh. So the film is based on a poem by Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. And if you look out there somewhere, there is a reading of it by Christopher Lee. Uh-huh. Who's kind of fun. So I've got a couple of little things about Oogie Boogie, though. He wasn't in the original poem. He was actually created in the film. He has a line with Santa where Santa says, uh, what are you going to do? And Oogie Boogie responds, I'm going to do the best I can, mm-hmm. which is actually taken 
almost verbatim from a old Betty Boop cartoon with Cap Calloway called The Old Man and the Mountain from 1933, which is fun because then Oogie Boogie, a lot of his stuff is actually based on Cap Calloway. If you don't know who Cap Calloway is, I have been thinking about this and I think the best cultural touch point people might still have today is in the Blues Brothers film. The guy who sings Minnie the Moocher at the end of the film is Cap Calloway. He is now dead because he was doing things in 1930. Okay. But, and this is the more integral to the film point, Oogie Boogie originally had a different conclusion. It only ever got as far as storyboards, but in the original ones, Oogie Boogie turned out to actually be Dr. Finkelstein in disguise, who was attempting to get vengeance on Jack and Sally, which would have made for a very different film. It might have produced that sort of comeuppance for Finkelstein that we were talking about the film kind of lacking before. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, what would he be getting vengeance for? That could become problematic, and it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, which I guess is why they didn't end up doing it. Yeah, I can see why they didn't do it, because they're very different characters. Like, yeah. this rational scientist and this charismatic jazz singer, gambler, sack of bugs. Yes. I, I can see how someone was like, it would be cool if this! And then, like, someone going, yeah, but it wouldn't actually make any sense or work. Uh-huh. So, related to that, in the trivia on IMDb about, about Nightmare Before Christmas, reportedly Tim Burton was so infuriated by that idea that he literally kicked a hole into the wall. Okay, like I said, somebody went, yeah, but that wouldn't work. <laughs> it would be dumb. So the last thing I have is that I, I wondered whether they had ever planned to do a sequel at all. So I looked that up, and it turns out that they are currently releasing a sequel in manga form. It is titled Zero's Journey, uh, which I have to assume is an intentional pun on Hero's Journey. It started being released in, I think, March of 2018, and is set to be a 20-issue run, so it'll finish next year. The next issue actually comes out on December 18th, so it's actively happening. Cool. But they are also in talks for a sequel as of October this year. They want to do uh, something with the property, and there was some vague talk about the possibility of a remake or a live-action remake, to which most people seem to be going, oh god, no, but there does seem to be some interest in actually doing a sequel to it, which I'm not sure is something that the world needs, but I can definitely see... The reason I looked it up is because they do show you the different holiday town doors. Mm -hmm. Like It seemed like there was an opportunity for playing with the different things there that they never got to explore. Yeah. The in fact the first trivia thing on IMDb talks about how Walt Disney Pictures started considering producing a sequel in two thousand one, but they wanted to use computer animation and Tim Burton convinced them to give up on that idea and said, I was always very protective of Nightmare not to do sequels or things of that kind, you know, Jack visits Thanksgiving World or other kinds of things just because I felt the movie had a purity to it and the people that like it. Hmm. So that's interesting that they're considering doing another one that's not a totally separate idea, like about Zero or whatever. Well, the Zero manga and the sequel, I don't think, have anything to do with each other. I don't remember seeing if Tim Burton had exactly spoken on that. Let me pull it up. There's not a comment from Tim Burton in the article that I'm looking at, which is dated October 13th, but Chris Sarandon, who did the acting voice of Jack Skellington, said, I'd crawl on my hands and knees from the east coast to the west coast in the spring or the fall to do it again. 
One other small fun fact I have is that it took them three years to make the movie because of the animation for all the things. Stop motion animation is pretty time consuming. Yeah. So I have a couple of fun facts. One that I thought you would be particularly interested in is that Tim Burton has said that the original poem that inspired Nightmare Before Christmas was itself inspired when he saw store employees taking down like a Halloween display and like Halloween merchandise and replacing it with all the Christmas stuff and seeing those things side by side sparked his imagination to write the poem. Yeah, that does speak to me as someone who was working retail this year and literally had to put out the Christmas cards on October 1st. Yeah, I can see how that juxtaposition is somewhat jarring and, you know, might give rise to this idea of juxtaposing them in a more integrated way. It has got to the point where I now have a annual ritual of when I'm doing the holiday set for all the Christmas displays, which invariably takes place in the last week of October, I do have Nightmare Before Christmas playing in the background for it all, because it's the only way I can get through it. That's fair. The other fun fact that I wanted to share was that Danny Elfman, who we've already discussed as being a genius and the composer and songwriter for Nightmare Before Christmas, who scored the film and wrote the music and sang the voice of Jack, was first well-known as the singer-songwriter for new wave band Oingo Boingo in the early 1980s. Oingo Boingo is a pretty awesome band. I'm a pretty big fan of them, as you know. And I encourage everyone to check them out if they haven't already heard their music. Yeah, they're particularly known for their song Weird Science, but I think our personal recommendations would probably be Pedestrian Wolves and War Again. I think Pedestrian Wolves is my favorite. I think War Again is one of your favorites. Yeah. War Again is also pretty pretty great. I, I also appreciate it. The entire Dead Man's Party album, oh, which God, yeah. Weird Science is on, is a pretty great album. It so. is. They broke up in 1995 because Danny Elfman was having some pretty bad hearing loss as a result of performing with the band. And it was also causing some conflicts with all of his his commitments, scoring movies and things. So between the two of those, he ended up leaving the band. Yeah. I mean, he has done an awful lot of things. Um, he did the theme song to the Tim Burton Batman film. He's scored all but like three of Tim Burton movies. Yeah. He also um, wrote the Simpsons intro, I believe. Yep. 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 He, yeah, he's incredibly prolific and still going strong. Has done music for Cirque du Soleil, just all sorts of things. And uh, yeah, pretty impressive career. Yeah. Do we have any other fun facts? Now, now we're just the Danny Elfman fan podcast. Yep. So next week we're going to do an album of Boingo Boingo and then we'll do Corpse Bride. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you've just gotten people's hopes up. As you may actually remember from our schedule, next week we're going to be covering The Left Hand of Darkness by Russell Kalevich. Okay, so I think this is pretty exciting, guys. This is the segment of this where we would normally have feedback, follow-up, or late thoughts on earlier episodes, which we haven't ever actually done because we've never had any feedback, follow-up, or late thoughts. We still don't have any feedback or follow-up, but we do have some late thoughts for our episode on American Gods and Good Omens. The first thing I wanted to bring up is a correction to something I said in that episode, which is I said that Shadow went to prison for robbing a casino. 
That's actually what happens in the show. In the book, he goes to prison for assaulting someone who stole from him. This is the problem with consuming the same story in multiple media and then trying to talk about only one of them. You get them mixed up. It's very annoying. Oh, another late thought that I had relating to the point I made about both Good Omens and American Gods having the situation where both sides of the building conflict being basically the same side. Uh, I wanted to point out that in Good Omens, both the angels and the demons are employing the witch finders. <laughs> so, very literally employed the same guys. Yeah. I really like how that's all portrayed with Shadwell quite, quite happily taking money from both sides and the whole documents full of fake witch finders that he definitely employs. Yeah. Although he doesn't know they're opposing sides. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And the other thing was something that we wanted to bring up from American Gods that we forgot to mention in the original episode, which is that it's sort of more of a fun fact than anything else. When Shadow is hiding out in the small town, he adopts the name that he's given by Wednesday, which is Mike Ansel, which is actually a reference to an old fairy tale from Northumbria, which is possibly a more precise location than most fairy tales, I feel, which is sort of northern England area. But Mike Ansel is a bastardization of my own self, which in sort of old Scottish dialect would be Mayansel or Einsel. So that was all the follow-up. Okay, so that was our late thoughts. Next week, as I think we've said a couple of times already in this episode, we're going to be doing The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, which is a sci-fi novel, and we're going to have some fun conversations about that. You can, in the meantime, find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, and on Twitter at UnramblingsPod. Please feel free to contact us through either of those, or email us at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any feedback or questions or corrections that you have for us, or anything you'd just generally like to discuss. Also, if you'd like to continue on the conversation on social media, you can use hashtag unramblings. And we will try and chime in as much as possible, which is probably a reasonable amount because we have too much time on our hands. But until next week, I think that that's us done for the day. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll tune in next week. Ah, Tim Burton. You're a weird dude. He is a weird dude. I'm Santa Claus. (laughs) That's going at the end in Blue Burial.